This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. To receive updates on the latest episodes, subscribe to our newsletter at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com and win a chance to ask questions to our guests. Welcome back to the show. And uh, in, a, in this episode, we will have three guests and they collaborated in facilitating a co-located retrospective for multiple teams and a total of 60 people. As you might expect, they split the groups and they used nested diamonds of participatory decision-making from Sam Kinner's book. They wrote a detailed blog post that is linked in uh, thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com on the uh, on this episode's page, as well as on the show notes. But I wanted to ask them a few more questions. Why would you embark on such an endeavor? What did they learn and what recommendation they have for facilitators about to handle a group this large? Enjoy the show. Thanks everyone for, for joining today. We have uh, Anita, Pam, and Lucas that uh, worked together for in a facilitation for a large retrospective with uh, 60 people. There is a, a blog post that is going to be on uh, on the on the this is retrospective facilitation website. Um, folks, do you want to introduce yourself? Maybe starting from Anita. Sure. Um, I'm Anita Siebold. I currently work as a release train engineer for a major insurance carrier in the Vancouver area. Cool. Uh, Lucas, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, yeah, Lucas Bose. I, at the time um, that Anita and Pam and I worked together, it was an agile coach at that insurance company, and I've since moved on to, uh, to other companies. Cool. And Pam, last but not least. So my name is Pam Clavier, and I live here in Vancouver, and um, I'm a program manager, and I'm very interested in Agile and DevOps and Scaled Agile. Cool. Awesome. And um, so how was that, um, and this is a question for the, for the three of you, I know Lucas was in as a, as a contractor, how was that uh, 60 people retrospective uh, schedule? How did it come uh, to be? So I, I'll start because I think um, it was the one that was sort of mandated with it. And what had happened is we had done a, you know, we, we started uh, to launch some of the agile teams at that, at that insurance company there, that Pam and Anita are. And uh, we had a handful of teams, maybe two or three. And we did one retrospective with them. And, uh, and that was about, I don't know, 20, 25 people. Anita, I don't remember if, uh, Pam, you would have been there, right? The first retrospective was pretty, much smaller, little 25 people or so. And yeah, and we we did, uh, you know, we just facilitated a retrospective and uh, did pay attention to a little bit of group and breakout groups and things. And a few months later, the our sponsor came to me and said, oh, or uh, we want to do another retrospective and was so impressed with how it went the last time if, if I could facilitate it again. Now, by then, we had the onboarded additional teams. It wasn't 25 anymore. It was now 90 people in all. And so I, as a consultant, I was like, you know, you don't 
say no to these things. So I was like, okay, but you know, in in my mind, I was like going, oh boy. <laughs> so um, what uh, initially Anita and I did, and then Pam joined us a little bit later, is we sat down and we went, okay, how do we facilitate a retrospective with 90 people? Like, how do we do that logistically? And then the other thing that somebody had said to me, another agile coach that I was working with, they said, oh, you know, I hate these, uh, these large retrospectives, these organization-wide retrospectives. Nothing ever comes from them. They're all just, you know, everybody talks and then they disperse and, and nothing gets done. And I had this, like, shame, this sense of shame. It was like, okay, this cannot happen. We cannot have a 90 people retrospective and nothing come from it. Like, this cannot be on, on my watch, right? So Anita and I sat down, and this was all in my mind, and I don't think I ever told Anita or Pam about this, but that's how I felt. I was like, okay, we've got to make sure this turns into something, and we've got three hours, 90 people, and we got to walk away from this with that, with that sponsor still impressed with me, right? So, so how, how was, uh, what was the initial, so when the 25 um, retro went, went well, uh, what was like the the reason for that retro and was there like a reason for this uh, retro to be called from the sponsor's perspective? If I may jump in there, I, I think just uh, Lucas had some fantastic feedback from the client at that stage. And the client was really insisting on Lucas coming back and doing another retrospective. I think at that stage we were saying, oh, should it be someone else? And it was a very firm answer. No, we want Lucas to do it. And if I recall correctly, the, the reason the feedback was so good was that it was time boxed. So I think people felt really um, that their, their time was respected because this was quite a new concept to do the, the retro for all the teams. So people felt, well, we've got all these team ceremonies. Now we've got these extra ceremonies. So um, giving them that respect and time boxing it. And I think people felt heard. They came away out of that with something. I don't know, Anita, Lucas, if you want to add to why those initial ones were such a success where they said, well, Lucas has to do this one. Well, maybe you guys would be better to speak to that. I'm not sure. <laughs> Lucas is just an excellent facilitator. But, uh, but you know what? I do think, like, I, I did take it the first time, and, and us, the three of us collectively, the, the bigger one, we took it very seriously. We, we, you know, we 90 people for three hours. A, it's a lot of money spent. And B, it, uh, you don't want to waste these people's time. Their time is meaningful. Their time is, is important. And, and neither of, neither, none of us went lightly about that. And, and so that's how, why we sat down. And I think, well, why was it so successful? I, I think because it was very results-oriented. It was really about, okay, we want to make our world better. How can we do that? How can we overcome obstacles that are above the team level? And, and how can we work together to, you know, to, to make this a better uh, work or a better place for us to work, right? And I think that probably came through. Cool. And so the, the preparation, like how, how long did you spend like thinking about the, the preparation? I feel so, oftentimes, even in shorter retrospective, maybe we don't prepare enough. Um, so it's, it's great to hear that you, you you thought about that, but how, so for the three hours that of the retro, how long would you say you've spent preparing? Well, yeah, I was going to say, Anita, you should say, because well, I think spent... you were the one that kind of. Well, well, Lucas, Lucas and I spent a good two hours, I think on the phone and uh, trying to figure out because Lucas wasn't in the office that day. 
and uh, trying to figure out what it, what, what it was going to be and the flow of the day. And uh, I'm sure that after that um, marathon telephone conversation, uh, Lucas spent quite a bit more time uh, preparing. And, and um, I think it was actually was on. one of the things that was really, really nice, nice and how the three of us worked so well together, like each contributed part, right? Like I was the agile coach, I've done lots of facilitation and stuff. So, and, and I had really a, have a, a passion for this uh, participatory decision-making model from Santana, right? So I wanted to bring that in. Um, Anita knew about that. So her and I really clicked about chatting this through and it helped me immensely that we could just talk it through. And then, you know, we had it all figured out at the dynamics level of how will people interact and all that. No word thought about it at all about how this is all going to logistically work. So Pam moves in from the side and she goes, she took care of everything, made it all happen. That's how I remember it, right? Like, correct me if, if my memory uh, cheats me, but, but I think like, without Pam, all of this would have fallen flat of it on its face because she really made sure that everything else was working right. Oh, you're very kind, Lucas. I think something that just brings to mind in terms of the um, logistics is we learned a lot of lessons as we went because I remember the first uh, retrospectives and the first um, all teams value increment planning. And, you know, this particular client had split IT into two areas and there was a lot of, there were a lot of eyes on DevOps, which was the group that we were doing the retrospective for. And we didn't want it to be perceived that they're getting special treatment. So, Initially, you know, people would come up to me and say, oh, please, could we have coffee and tea at the retrospective? And I'd say, no, that's special treatment. And then eventually we just gave in and nothing at coffee, tea, muffins and <laughs> a whole bike load of things. But, uh, yeah, I think there were a lot of lessons learned as we went through it. And we eventually made checklists on the logistics because, you know, it's just so far apart that you forget by the next time. And to have that checklist really helps. Nice. And so what was the, so when we had like those, was it 60 or 90 people? I think maybe I, I misunderstood. Well, we thought for, for 90 and it, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we, we invited 90, about 60 people showed up. Okay. So when, when you had the group together, like what did you prompt them with? What did you tell them was the purpose of these three hours? If I remember correctly, we framed the conversation at that point. We were very concerned. So, so I believe that the retrospective should be in the frame of something, right, of a question. And uh, at that point, our, one of our concerns was flow. How can we get value to flow more consistently and more, um, you know, more frequent releases? So we framed it with a question. that how can we increase the number of releases? Something along those lines. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So I think with this particular client, we also had um, a cloud group of teams and a DevOps group of teams. So um, another big way that we uh, promoted this or encouraged people to attend was that we wanted to break the barriers between the, the two teams. Although some shared resources were embedded in the DevOps pods, um, the, you know, the retrospective was another opportunity to bring everyone together and make sure that we don't have those, uh, those barriers and that we have cloud separately from DevOps, that they actually work together and have an opportunity to uh, make sure that they work at a program level together. Nice. And were you folks able to speak with the uh, with the audience before? Were you able to like check in with some of the uh, some of the people that were going to come about their expectations? I think what we did is we prepared the Scrum Masters, and 
Anita, I think that you do that now as you, you check in with them and you, you do a lot of follow-up afterwards on whatever they've, um, well, not necessarily the scrum masters, but whatever the stewards have taken away with them. But there's, there's a lot of buy-in that's needed and um, not just from the, the scrum masters to attend, but also from um, the different management levels within the client's uh, departments. Because, you know, it could very easily be a perception of, oh, this is a waste of time. I don't want my resources attending this. So we did have to warm the managers up to um, letting their resources come and participate in it. Cool. Um, and so you mentioned the diamond of uh, participatory decision making. I'm a, I'm a big fan here. It's like, it sits on my desk. Uh, the book by Sam Kinner. Um do, should we like maybe describe briefly like the diamond of participatory decision making to, to the audience? And then I think you had three diamonds in uh, in the blog post. So I think that was uh, that was pretty interesting. I actually think this is Lucas's because this is his favorite thing. Well, uh, Luke, I, um, I think yeah, the the diamond really. I'm very very passionate about it. I think you know it's very simplistic. So. Um, Enrico, you wanted us to explain how the diamond works real quick? Um, yeah, maybe like briefly so that the audience can have like a, just like a quick couple of uh, two, three sentences. Sure. Sure. So the, the diamond of participatory decision-making says that a, uh, a session of a group of people that wants to come to a conclusion on something, whether it be solving a problem or making some sort of a decision, that this conversation has to go through three stages, actually five stages, but the, the three big stages are the brainstorming or divergent phase where ideas are brought to the table. And then at the end, you have a phase where you converge, where you bring those ideas into a final conclusion, kind of uh, shortlist them or narrow them down and walk out of the meeting with, with a conclusion. Now, these two phases are fairly easy to comprehend, but what the middle phase is the one that really comes in and is very, very fascinating is that you must not go from brainstorming and diverging directly to converging. You must have in the middle a, a phase where you debate and contemplate the different options and the different ideas, and uh, that's called the, uh, the grown zone, right? And, uh, and so we wanted to base our retrospective on this model because it really, really lines well with retrospectives. It's like, okay, what issues do we have? That's the divergence phase. And the Scrum Master's you know, value comes in there in making sure that people's ideas and issues and thoughts are brought on the table. And it's not just making sure everybody has a turn to speak. It's making sure that people get are able to articulate their thoughts and bring them out and um, uh, that people can understand what they're saying because not all of us are that good at articulating things, right? And, and that sort of thing. So all kinds of facilitation techniques. And then you have to accommodate um, uh, debate and, and contemplation and it's a little bit uncomfortable. And then finally go into a uh, into this sort of shortlisting phase. Now with, with 90 people that we planned for, 60 that actually came, that's a whole other dimension because how can you get ideas from 60 people contemplate ideas from 60 people and then converge into a single sort of um, action plan and that was the challenge really um and and so yeah i guess that's how the, the model works and then what we did is to solve this and I, this was anita and i is doing there we talked for two hours trying to figure out how to do this is that we really need little mini diamonds inside of the big diamond right so we would put the teams into uh, the people into teams smaller teams of five or seven or eight 
and then they would all go through their diamond and converge. So we'd have, you know, five or six or so teams all diverging, contemplating, converging, coming out with a suggestion. And then we wanted to bring that all together and together contemplate all these ideas and then converge again. So this sort of a recursive red uh, diamond model, that's where that came from. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I really like the uh, I really like the the, the uh, what you you mentioned about that. Oftentimes we prematurely converge, and I think in the book he mentions that as like he marks them as familiar opinions. That is like when you open a diamond for to to diverge, you you can oftentimes and I feel oftentimes in in retrospect as we converge too early, we get into familiar opinions, we get into what I call like whack-a-mole retrospectives that just like fix everything, put action items around, but not really reflecting and so i'm curious at the end of those like um of those convergence how did the group uh share ideas within each other and during the uh the during the the ground zone and the convergence how did you folks uh facilitate did you have the scrum master helping out uh to, to facilitate some of that um i remember one thing very clearly and that is that we made a point at the beginning of the meeting to introduce the diamond model so that everybody in the room could hear and and that they could all you know participate in that and make sure that it's understood that it's important to debate these things and, and that everybody has uh, that there's a time for brainstorming and that during this time you're not allowed to criticize each other's ideas and then the converse. So this I remember, maybe Anita and Pam, maybe you guys remember a little bit better how we did it in the actual meeting then. So in the actual meeting, we had, uh, um, like Luca, Lucas was saying, we had the smaller groups happening, and those smaller groups had um, came up with one topic, and then we had more of a marketplace where people were voting on the different topics, um, and we came up with a certain number, and they uh, went off and, and uh, did nice. work within those groups, and then that was presented back uh, to the whole group. What I, what I really liked about it is it really got a lot of information out of a huge group of people very quickly and different types of people. Like some people will be um, forthcoming in within a group and will say things. Other people might be a bit more reserved. I think what this method does is you get a chance to write down your ideas on a sticky. And so whether you're, you're, you're quiet in a group or louder in a group, your voice is still heard and those stickies all get consolidated. So you get to talk about it at your table and then that gets um, pulled up to a higher level. Um, I just like being able to uh, engage with different types of people in that way. Fantastic. Nice. And so um, did the three hours end on time and what was the outcome of that? Uh... So we did end on time and the outcome was that I believe we had three um, subject areas that were selected and we had three stewards that worked on those areas uh, over the next 10 weeks. Uh, and I think something that Anita has done fantastically, she does all of these things fantastically, by the way, but um, something that she's done fantastically is she really makes sure that the stewards own these items and um, just does that little bit of following up and prodding. And she also makes everything really visible. She puts it onto a, either a Scrum Scrum's dashboard or onto a SharePoint site. 
and it's always communicated afterwards. So even the people who weren't in the retrospective can see what came out of it and can then volunteer to those specific stewards and say, oh, I'd like to actually contribute to this um, if they've got something else to add. And actually, I remember that one of the learnings that came out of, out of the first one was that um, for the first one, I think we sent the, the groups away, but then we felt that they needed scrum masters to, to really be, uh, you know, to be able to really effectively turn this into, into action. I don't know, Anita, if you, and Pam, if you still do that now, do you still have a facilitator kind of guide each of these subject areas? So we, we ask uh, that a steward is identified. Uh, it can be a scrum master. It can be anybody who can function as a steward. Uh, but then uh, what I've done is I've laid out what it means to be a steward and what the expectations are. And uh, then I let them loose and I just check in with them here and there and to make sure that they're moving forward. What we have found after um, a retrospective very near the beginning is that um, people weren't that willing to step or to volunteer at the, with this one particular retrospective. And then at the next one, they needed feedback. Uh, the feedback was really, well, you could see that they hadn't been done very much during the during the, the break, some of them. And I think we've corrected on that and um, got people more engaged, people who really actually feel the pain of the problem. Um, and uh, Anissa, I think that's something else you couldn't speak to about the, uh, the way that the sessions are structured now, where people don't have to stay for the entire session if they don't, if they don't feel like they're actually engaged in the particular problems. Yeah, we have tried different ways of doing this. Um, so there was one session that we, where we did the identification of the subject and uh, we voted things uh, down to about three subjects. And then at that point we asked for volunteers and that anybody who didn't want to volunteer, uh, they could leave. So we've done that once. Um, and then we've gone back to um, having everybody stay and working through the problems. But we've done it in different ways. We haven't quite settled on a way uh, that will work well. Cool. And so at the end of um, at the end of this uh, larger retro, how do you get feedback on the on the retro itself? Oftentimes I use the ROTI, the return of time invested. Do you have like a, a way to gather feedback to, to improve the next retro? So we do two things. Um, there's always a feedback wall in the actual room. Um, where we uh, gather feedback. And then I will run a retrospective with the Scrum Masters um, on the retrospective. <laughs> so then I get feedback from them on what worked and what didn't. We've tried a SharePoint survey before and um, it didn't have very much feedback. So I think like Anita's methods of getting the feedback directly and then from the, the the Scrum Master Group was much better. Sorry, Pam, you were breaking up. Did you say SharePoint? Oh yeah, we've tried a we've tried a okay. SharePoint survey before, and you I know, see. Yeah. out of a group of sixty, we'd get eleven respondents and yeah. very peripheral I've, information. Yeah, I've noticed like every time I do not get feedback in the room for my retros, and I just say, "Hey, I'm gonna send you a link, and can you fill in for feedback?" I no one ever does, or it's a very minimal part of the group. I think. Uh, uh, I think it's probably, uh, yeah, people are, I don't know, busy unless they really have their art into it. They'll, uh, they'll do something else or they'll forget. 
Yeah, so I was just wondering, I, I'm not sure if Anita said it or not, and I missed it, but we did like an exit poll on the on the way out from the first retrospective. Did you say that? On the way out, we we had uh, some sort of like a money back. How much money, value did you get out of that? It was like a visual sort of indicator. And they could put, I don't know if they could draw uh, some, some points. Yeah, I, I drew a money, I drew a money bag. Um, or there was actually three parts. One was just coins, uh, and then two money bags together, and one money bag. And so you, the intention was, and people did, they put a check mark or a dot uh, where they felt that the value had been for them. And I, I remember that people were very, very positive about about the their, their feedback in terms of the retrospective was um, either the the middle or the high um, uh, option that they had. The skepticism, and there was a fair bit of skepticism, but the skepticism was about that now turning into tangible outcomes after the retrospective, right? That was where the skepticism is. But with the meeting themselves, people were fairly impressed, I think. And the, the, the same problem we had the first time where people were worried about something actually coming out of it, it's still there. Um, and what I introduced in the last retrospective was I actually uh, categorized all the topics that we've had for the past year and a half into four different categories. And then I created um, dials to show how we had progressed um, towards green. And uh, because some of these subjects are so wide that in 10 weeks we can't move very far. Uh, but I wanted to show that, yes, there has actually been progress, even if we, we don't seem to make a huge amount of progress in 10 weeks. Nice. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think uh, when I was reading the blog post, there was uh, something about following up. And uh, oftentimes we think retro is like this time where we need to produce action items. But especially in large organizations, the change, the change takes like weeks, months, sometimes longer than that. And um, so I like this dial thing that, that you mentioned, uh, Anita, to, to keep track of things. Is that something that is visible in a shared space as well, um, like this progress? No, for that time, for that particular um, session, I just did it in PowerPoint. But you know, I think there's, there's actually an interesting uh, sort of trigger here, what you said about people think there needs to be lots of action items and takes time. But I think there is a whole other dimension to this that that we haven't talked about, and probably not a lot of people that I've heard talk about, and that is the the capability of an organization to synthesize knowledge. You know, where, where how much is an organization able to create shared context across more than pockets of teams? And how can a retrospective be a channel or a catalyst, like a retrospective decides a catalyst to realign across multiple teams or many teams and um and and for that shared context that then survives i mean that in itself has value even i think the action items are important and all but the ability to align the ability to create shared context in itself is a capability that not a lot of organizations necessarily have yeah i think this particular organization has fantastic leadership support so it's got communities of practice as well, which are really encouraged. Like I've worked at a lot of organizations where they'll say, oh, you're a consultant. Uh, no, we don't want you spending time in the community of practice. We want you to do only really billable work. Whereas here, it's, everyone's treated the same. You need to participate in a community of practice. And uh, there's even funding for these retros where uh, we, we're off-site with them. 
and it's it's encouraged to say people need to go they need to make the time they need to get out of the office or they'll get disengaged because people will pop in and out or oh, i've got to quickly go to a meeting and come back so i think that that leadership support as well as the support to get things done afterwards is there Fantastic. I was speaking with, uh, so I'm, I'm going to have uh, a former F-18 pilot on the on the podcast talking about military debriefings. And we were talking about like uh, feedback and learning and in the military, like feedback is something that happens as a second nature and uh, the ranks are left at the door. So when they do uh, debriefings after action reviews, they, they don't really look at which rank you have. They just look at what you have to say. And that's throughout the whole, uh, the whole, the whole military. And, um, what what struck me is that uh, kind of aha moment was like they do it as soon as they start training, so they go through training through like uh, military and it's just like this it's second nature to get feedback, and I don't know if in in in, uh, in the uh, in the school system we get that sort of like exposure to feedback, and uh, at least in my experience I, I didn't, and I, I feel like feedback is such a critical part of like uh, the way we work that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys uh, What do you guys think about that? Well, I, I yeah, I think it's really important. I think if you if you're not actually engaging with people and finding out what went well, and also looking at, at that, not just what went badly um, or what could be improved on, um, you're missing out on a lot of opportunities. And then eventually, when something manifests, it's it's too late to actually take the corrective action or to um, continue the the great behavior. Um, I think we're almost at the uh, at the end. You, you know what? Can I just? I think I thought your question was quite interesting, and I think it's actually quite deep because, and it speaks to when we talk about agility. You know, most of us understand that agility is not just about the mechanics of delivering software or, or value, right? Agility is about has to do also with the empowerment of the of the frontline employees and the transfer of ownership of quality and of debt of the future onto every single person that's involved not just management and a, a re- retrospective but particularly a retrospective of this magnitude the importance of the message that this sends that hey we, you are all asked to be involved in improving our context. That's a really powerful message to send. And I think it's more, it needs to be more than a message. It starts with a message, but then what has to happen is this ownership actually has to, you know, uh, take root in the organization, in the culture and in the thinking of the people, in the culture of the organization, the, 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 the culture of owning our destiny collectively together, that everybody needs you know, to, to do their part and everybody has avenues to do their part and to improve. So I think there's a lot to this, actually, to, to what you're saying. So when you talk about the military, right? Like at a cultural level, leaving your, your rank behind and going in and saying, okay, look, we're in this together. We've got to make this work together. We cannot delegate improvement to individuals or centralize that. I think there's a lot to, to, to be you know, learned there. And I think at this particular client, there's a lot of awareness of um, the necessity to do something with those actions afterwards. Like um, there were some cultural surveys and some um, additional surveys that were done. And there's a strong emphasis on we take that feedback from the survey that the employees and consultants give us and we actually do something about it. And there'll be town halls where uh, there's feedback that's given. 
um, and I'm talking about the ITO meetings, where um, if there is a survey, it's actually change management jumps in and makes sure that um, whatever came out of that gets uh, gets the appropriate uh, response afterwards that something's been done. Cool, and and also the 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 uh, one thing I was uh, I was mentioning with the with the other guests from the military is like about the blame kind of like. Uh, Blame is like it's not. There's no time for blame when when you're deployed in a war zone. If something goes wrong, it's uh, it's not about so much blaming. It's about like looking at the context, looking at what happened. And I oftentimes feels like people are refrain from doing retrospectives because of like they don't want to like, be the scapegoat. And it's great to hear like a success story of a of a large of a large uh, retrospective like this. And uh, it's great to hear about. Uh, how you folks prepared and uh, and got into that and keep iterating on that because I think that's another thing that I got out of that uh, of that blog post. He said, "Oh, we should have improved uh, this thing or that thing." Uh, so I think it's uh, it's part of the continuous learning. It's like learning on how we learn as well. Um, so maybe like we're reaching kind of like the the end of the of the time. I want to see if you guys have like a, a nugget of. Uh, uh, of advice for someone out there that has to like facilitate a large, uh, a large retrospective with like this many people, maybe around 60 or so. And what would be one suggestion uh, or one thing to do or one thing not to do? Uh, maybe, uh, Anita, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, for me, it's around preparing, but it takes a lot of preparation and thinking things through. Um, and the other one I would suggest is uh, to do it with somebody. So uh, I did um, my first one with Lucas, and uh, the ones that we run now I do with our resident agile coach at this point. And it makes it a lot easier when you're two um, to share the load of what of what it actually is. Nice. Uh, Pam, would you like to go next? Okay. Um, I think for me the biggest things are also, again, preparation, not just preparing uh, everything so it runs smoothly, but preparing people. So from the small things, like when you email them to tell them about the retrospective, put it in context. Tell them things like, you're going to be on your feet for most of the day, wear comfortable shoes. You know, small things like that, they make a difference. You know, I've had people come back in afterwards and say, I'm really glad you told me about wearing comfortable shoes because I was on my feet for three hours. And then um, part of that preparation is getting the buy-in. So not just from the people you invite, but from the people you you don't invite to the retrospective, so they understand why why they're not invited and who the retrospective is for. Um, for an example, at this particular client, um, initially the the managers and directors wanted to to come to, and they did come to the retrospectives, and um, we eventually got it to just being the the teams who are there and some of the managers. And then I think the last thing from my side is I think you need a really strong facilitator, someone who can um, call time out when things go into a bit of a spiral in a discussion and um, really engage the group. Nice. Um, Lucas, any recommendations? Yeah, it's a good point there, Pam. I appreciate what you said about making sure people are not invited are also bought in. That's, uh, that's really a, a good one. Um, I think for me, I remember walking out, going back a little bit to that diamond, right? Um, I think with only three hours and so many people, the, the big danger is that you rush through it. And and the worst, the thing that is the, the, the side effect of that, which I think is the worst possible outcome, is that people think it was just to go through the motions and it was meaningless. 
And so the, the, this debate has to happen. This contemplation of ideas and discussing, it has to happen. And I think um, this is the big advice for me is to make sure that you don't, you know, in, in the, in the, under the pressure of facilitating this and getting it all done in three hours, that you don't short sell that part where people have meaningful conversation and where they gain an appreciation for the topic. Because otherwise they just walk out and go, ah, just another meeting, right? And, and I think that was the, the biggest thing for me. And uh, I think there's some lessons that we, we learned or that I learned around the, how can you converge from the input from multiple teams into, into a more coherent uh, information that is owned by the entire group. So making sure that you know, you, uh, people with the same subject area put the posters side by side and that you have a little bit of a conversation around those posters after, making sure that that consolidation and integration of information from different breakout groups gets properly consolidated at the end. That was one of the takeaways from, from me as well. Cool. Nice. Um, so we're almost up with time. Any final thoughts before I move to the final three questions I ask all the guests? Is it like, what did you do yesterday? What did you do? <laughs> yeah, Matt said glad. Um, so the three questions I ask everyone are um, if you have a favorite uh, retrospective activity and uh, like uh, a story where you use it. And uh, yeah, if you want to go from that, like maybe Anita, do you have like a favorite activity or model that you follow when you facilitate retrospectives? I have two um, favorite things I do. Um, I like the um, the four L's. It's uh, uh, what uh, what did I like, what did I learn, uh, what did I lack, and what did I long for. Uh, when I use that, I tend to get quite a bit of good material out. And uh, the last one I do is, uh, and I do this only at the team level, um, is um, uh, I end the retrospective with some kind of appreciation. So it goes around the room and uh, every person answers a question. It usually is around what do you appreciate in the team and uh, what is it you get out of the team or something that allows every person to express their appreciation for being in the group. Nice. And it just leaves everybody in a good space when they leave the room. Nice. Great to end on a high note. Um, Pam, uh, same question. Do you have a favorite Perspective, give it a model you follow. Yeah, I think that I, I have to echo what Anita is saying about the appreciation because we often do forget that, and you know we go in there and think, oh gosh, we've always got to improve. We've got so much to improve, and you know you feel like you're never improving just because you look at um, what didn't work well and what you've got to fix. But if you look at what worked well, it's a good opportunity to to say that and to emphasize the appreci appreciation. And then I just like the process where we do the categorization of the topics because you always come in there and feel, oh, this is something that really bugs me and um, you, you put it down or this is something I'm really appreciative of. But um, when you categorize the topics, it's actually amazing how much sense it makes. And it's almost like this happens organically where you feel part of the team or part of the group. And um, it, it's just more connection than coming in there with your own issues on your own. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Lucas, same question. So I don't know that it's my favorite, but I have started using a technique which I think is a bit novel and, and cute, and that is a, a mandated debate uh, or, or almost like creating an argument. So 
you know, you might group, break up group of people into multiple groups and then have a topic and they have to take sides and they have, they have a little preparation time where they create their arguments and then the other group prepares their arguments. You go back and forth a few times and it's kind of nice. It creates a little bit of friendly competition and lots of fun and laughter and brings out a lot of information onto the table, right? Nice. So is it like uh, playing devil's advocate kind of thing? So taking one side. Yeah, in a, in a way, except it's not like one is a proponent and the other one is a is a devil's advocate. It's more like you have two sides of a debate, and they're having to, you know, it's kind of like improv, right? They're having to prepare their arguments and they're having to try to convince the other team of their point of view, even though they may not necessarily agree on that point of view, right? Because it's it's assigned to them their side. They're told which side they have to take, and so. And so they have to, in their, even in their preparation, they have to uncover all kinds of information and data and, you know, in trying to win the argument. And it really is, a, it creates a very rich flow of information. Nice. And the second question is, uh, what is a book that you are reading right now? Uh, Anita, do you want to go first? Or a book you just finished reading? Um, I am uh, re- rereading the uh, book Servant Leader by Jeff Watts. Nice. Uh, I read it last year, and right now I'm listening to it as I'm driving nice. to work. Uh, Pam, same question. Okay, I'm, I'm actually listening to it, but I've got it on my bookshelf as well, so I'm going to look up who wrote it. It's Eric Reese, and it's called The Lean Startup. And this is actually a book that Lucas recommended to me quite a while ago. Yes, it's, it's, it's really good. It's got a lot of um, agile practices in it and um, it's cool. yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, Lucas, same I uh, just finished re- reading Dare to Lead from Bernice Brown. And uh, I am now in the middle of the knowledge creating company, how Japanese companies create the dynamics of innovation. I talk to Nice. And final question, Sarah from Anita. What is your favorite food? What is your favorite dish? My favorite dish? Um, it is actually an Austrian dish. Uh, made with um, uh, homemade noodles and cheese. Nice. What is it called? Well, I'm trying to rack my brain. Lucas might know. <laughs> what is it? Sorry. Uh, it's uh, with spätzle and cheese. Ah, I can't remember right now. <laughs> it's okay. It's a it's an Austrian dish that I grew up with. As soon as you say Austrian, I, all I can picture is a schnitzel. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas, do you want to go next? <laughs> favorite dish? Sure. Um, hands down, Swiss cheese fondue. Fair no question. And Pam? Oh, gosh, I'm a lot more boring than the both of them. Um, for me, it's just uh, steak. Uh, <laughs> I love a good steak. Well done. <laughs> Sorry to all the vegetarians out there. <laughs> medium, medium rare, well done. Uh, medium rare, yes. Oh, sorry, I thought you were saying well done. No, medium, medium rare. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, Thank you, everyone, for uh, for participating into this interview, and I'll uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your night. This yeah, has thank been you a lot for setting it up, Enrico. Thank you very much. No worries. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Which change are you going to try in your next retrospective? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag #ThisIsRetrospectiveFacilitation or leave us a comment on thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com. You can find out how to connect with Pam, Anita, and Lucas on thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com on this episode's blog post.
Norm Kurt, known as the father of retrospectives and author of the book Project Retrospectives, suffered a disabling brain injury in a car accident 20 years ago. Visit thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash helpnorm for details and a link on how to contribute to his fund. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.